you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is of David, one of the earlier Psalms of David. And David is considering how does God show himself to man? And we saw last week in the first six verses here that the one way that he does it is to show himself through his creation. What he has made is a way that God shows himself. In fact, it's such a convincing argument that later he does not allow men to get off the hook. It says that just the creation is enough for a man to be guilty before God. It's not enough to save a man. It's not enough to tell a man how is he to be right with this God. But it is enough to tell him that there is a God above him uh, because there is no disputing through what he has made. In the second half of this psalm, from verses 7 through verse 11, we're going to see that the master way that God reveals himself is through his word. He has allowed words to be written that men have written down, and God claims them as his own in such a way that he says, this is my word, and that it will never, ever go out of effect. Forever and ever, heaven will pass away, earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. He's claimed this as his own uh, words. And so this is how we're going to see today that God communicates with men. So let's look at, uh, starting with verse 1, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor not or language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then shall be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So when you, we saw at the beginning that, that the convincing argument of the creation is just indisputable. To look at what God has made is to show that God is there. There is no, there is no way that you could not say Um, There are very few true atheists. An atheist often is someone who doesn't like the conclusion that others have have concluded. 
They want it to be any other way, and they've decided that they're going to be their own authority. But when you look at something as majestic as, as a mountain or something as intricate as the inside of a leaf or your hand or the way your brain works or even how you interact with other people, all of that has God's fingerprints, all of it. And, and the, the idea that the heavens, just astronomy, nothing else, just the weather and the sky and the sun and the stars is enough to say God is truly glorious. If things that are so amazing are glorious, then the maker of those must be, in fact, glorious too. When we get to verse 6 at the end, we're transitioning away from the sun. It had a picture of the sun as a glorious bridegroom, as a runner who's about to run a race, who knows he's going to win, a, a champion, an invincible, inconquerable champion. And it said that the heat was just stabbing at people, that nobody could get away from the prying heat of the sun. I see it as a transition because we're now in seven, and seven is now how God is dealing with us through his word, and his word is equally probing. It's equally um, intensifying, shining light on things so that we know what reality actually is. The more sunlight there is, the more you know what the lay of the land is. The more sunlight there is, you know where the furniture is in the room. When, the, when it's gone, you can't see anything at all, and nothing, you, can't, you don't even know what reality means. Everything is, is in kind of a, a shadowy world. Well, the law of God acts as a light. In fact, we see that there's two psalms uh, in the Psalter that really deal with God's word. Uh, the largest one in the Bible, the largest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. There's 176 verses. Every single one of those verses is in eight-verse chunks that's an alphabetical psalm so it goes through the hebrew alphabet one at a time and every single one of the eight lines start with that same letter and every single uh, group of eight is talking about god's word it's god the writer of his word who is basically giving commentary on his word what does his word according to him what is his word well when you look at that and just how awesome it is in psalm 119 um we went through it in a, in a Bible study that was supposed to last a month, and it was almost two years before we finished it, just to go through it. And it was, and whatever you saw, there was something underneath that, and we just, it was just inexhaustible. Well, when you get to Psalm 19, so there's Psalm 119, which is about God's word, and then Psalm 19, the second half of God's word, verses 7, 8, and 9, essentially takes all of what was in Psalm 119 and condenses it into the tiniest little poem. If you think of an epic poem that takes 500 pages to tell the story as opposed to three little lines, but yet just crammed with, with what God has said about himself. The economy of his word, about his word, is, is, is truly amazing. So let's look at uh, specifically 7, 8, and 9, we're going to see that 11 tags in uh, with this as well. And then when we get to 12, 13, and 14, this is um, kind of a response. What does a believer, how does a believer appropriately respond to the God of how great thou art, looking down from mountains, grandeur, or, or the God of the scriptures that's a firm foundation you can stand on? How, what does a believer do as a response? And we see that David has uh, a benediction as a, uh, or a doxology, really, at the end of this psalm, in 
to, to respond to God's response for him. Okay? So let's look at 7, 8, and 9. And this is really um, an amazing section. Now, you remember that Hebrew poetry is a little bit different than English. It doesn't, it's not rhymy. It's not roses or red, violets or blue, and something that rhymes with blue, and everything kind of dances along at the same kind of a pattern. Um, when a Hebrew poet sets down, a lot of times they'll double things or they'll give complete opposites. They'll say one thing and then say it's opposite or they'll say the same thing twice or they'll use different names for the same thing and that's what he's doing. He's talking about his word and he refers to it in six different ways. You're going to see that it's referred to in six different terms here, two and seven, two and eight, two and nine. Then he gives six adjectives to describe that word. Okay, so what is his word? What does God refer to his word as? Then describe that word. And then what effect does it have? So we're going to see that it's very, very uh, parallel. You're going to have everything kind of balanced. It's a poem. It it works just like a, a mobile where everything balances perfectly. So let's look starting in verse 7. This is Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous are altogether. So do you see that God has said something about his word, some different ways of describing his word. So we see to start that, that he calls it his law. He calls it his testimony, his statute, his commandment. I love verse 9. He calls it the fear. Interesting. We'll talk about that. And then he calls it the judgments. So he has different ways of looking at it. It's almost like when you're looking at something and you have to look around it, like you're looking at a diamond ring and you're looking around it to show as it's glinting off of the different light, you almost need to see it in its different components. Well, that's what we're, we're doing here. But do you see what was common to all of these verses? What's the same in every one of these? The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. They're all of the Lord. Everything here, God claims. God is claiming this. It's it's truly amazing to imagine that men wrote this. We know this is, the writer is David the king, but God claims this as his words, that he wrote this that the Holy Spirit wrote this, and that when you look at the Bible, all of it together fits perfectly because it's not contrary to each other. You don't say up is down and then down is up and left is right and right is left. Everything matches, everything is flawless because God claims this as different from anything else that he expressed. So this is the law of the Lord it's the, it's, it's the testimony of the Lord. Now, when we see at the beginning, all right, at the beginning of Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glory of God, and we see the word God there from verses 1 through 6. It's a different word from the word the Lord. When we see from 7 to 11, the, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, we have of the Lord is the covenant name of God. This is Jehovah. This is Yahweh. This is, in Hebrew, it just means I am. When Moses said, who is it that that I should say told me, he said, my name is I am. You tell him that I am sent you. And that, of course, you you could chew on for the rest of your life. What does that mean? But Yahweh simply means to be. 
Actually, it, it's, it is I am. It's first person to be in present tense. I am is his name. And when you get to the verse 7, the law of the Lord, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that he is Yahweh. This is Jehovah. This is the one who has made a promise to you. The one reading this, God has made a promise to you. And, the, and so when you look at the Lord, this is different than God. It's not just any God. Um, this is a culture where any God will be fine. America is becoming more progressively religious, not less, more and more religious, but less and less godly and less and less towards, towards the, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Father of Jesus, Yahweh is the father of Jesus. So the first thing I see that unites all of this is that all of these terms are talking about the same thing and all of them belong to God. God claims them as his. Okay, so let's just look at these these different parts. The first one is the law of the Lord. So we're in seven. The law here is the word Torah. I don't know if you've ever heard Torah. Torah is what you call the first five books of of the Old Testament. So everything that Moses wrote was called the Torah. In fact, a lot of people simply refer to as the law of Moses. So from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And, but it's a broader word than that. It's not just the idea that the law of Moses, uh, you should, you know, thou shalt nots and thou shouts. It's really more a broader term like anything instruction, anything teaching, anything that God has said that we then learn from. Something that we didn't know that had to be told to us. That is the law. And so God's word is something necessary for us that had to be told. We had to be told it. It couldn't be something we implied. It couldn't be something we inferred. We couldn't figure it out. We couldn't get there from any other way except that God chose to reveal himself. You can't figure out God. You can't deduce God. All right? So do you remember when they, uh, when the investigation, the journalist uh, from the Washington Post or whatever figured out that the, there was a bunker underneath the Greenbrier Hotel because he simply put every single clue together and thought, there must be, that must be one of the secret places. It has to be because there are 50 different reasons and here are the reasons and everyone was compelling and he was dead on right. And as soon as he wrote that piece, the next weekend it was open for tours because the Congress no longer was going to go there. They had to find another place uh, to secret place because they, once it's not secret, it's not secret anymore. It's the idea you can't figure out God simply because he's left us uh, crumbs in the woods. Every crumb that he's left us is so that we would see what he wanted us to see about him. He's self-revelatory. He reveals himself. And so you can't figure him out opposed from his word. His word is required for us. Okay? So this says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, perfect, perfect is more than just the idea of, um, uh, like, not wrong. It's perfect, meaning like 100% is a perfect paper. But this is more like your English teacher, if you remember your English teacher. My English teacher had 1963 hair all the way to the 90s, okay? And she, I, I diagrammed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sentences. I don't know if you ever had to diagram sentences, but I diagrammed so many sentences, and a tense that's perfect just means the verb finished, okay? So if you are studying, the word studying just keeps going. It's never finished. But if you did study, 
That's a perfect tense. It finished. The verb finished. So if I had studied, I'm not studying right now. So it's something that's done. So in this, this is more of a grammar term. The law is perfect, meaning it's complete. It's complete. It's, it's all the, the circle goes all the way to where it meets again. All right? If the law is perfect, so it's more than just blameless, it's complete and total all that you need. Everything that you need to know about God that he's revealing for your salvation, for your, your joy in your life, is been given to you. Do you know everything about God? Oh, no, not at all. It'll take the rest of eternity to progressively learn how wonderful your God is. It's not something that you can learn. It's not something that's on a bulleted list at the beginning of a, of a chapter. This is something that will take eternal life to learn. But everything that you need to know about God and how you are to deal with him, to be reconciled with him, is given in his word. It's perfect. And what does it do? It converts the soul. It converts you. It is powerful enough to take you from being dead and make you alive. It's powerful enough to stab like a sword down into the deep part of you and separate one part of you from another. It knows the motivations of your heart. It can say things in such a way that it gets your attention. The Bible is not a mystical book. It's not like a Ouija board. It's not like a magic eight ball. It's not something that you, that you play with. But the word of God is different. It's not, it's not just words or things to be known. It's not lists of the kings of Judah in alphabetical order. It is not mysterious to where there's some hidden code, math code behind it. It's, it is simply God is alive speaking out of his word into your soul. So when you are reading the Bible, you don't come to the Bible as an academic comes to the Bible. You come to the Bible as a worshiper because God is on the other side of that page to be known about that it was his idea, not yours. And he intends for you to know him fully because to know God, Jesus said, to know you is life and, the, and Jesus who you've sent. The son that you've sent, that is eternal life, is to know you, the only true God. So to know you through his word converts the soul. Okay, It revives your life. It covers every aspect of your life. It completely turns you from every sin. It converts you. It changes your direction. It causes repentance. It's the scriptures that do that. Okay, So when people are saved under the preaching of the word, it's the word it's the power of the word. It's God doing what he promised to do through his word. Uh, a preacher is simply someone who tries to explain it. That's all it is. What does it mean? If, some, if someone tells you what it means, you don't need a song and dance. That's it. A, a believer wants to, be, wants to understand it properly so that they can see God. That's what it does. And you can do that with your own Bible. That's what you do. You open it up. And you see God, you meet with God, it converts the soul. Now, I wrote down, this is my comment here, that if this is a law that's instruction, okay, this law means Torah or instruction or what God has to say, then my response is that I should learn it. It's to be learned. That's, that's how, what I wrote down. At the end of 7, it says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, that's easy. A testimony is truth as I see it. Okay, and that's what you would say. If, if I saw a crime and I was pulled into a court, 
and I was to give my testimony, they don't care anything that I know. They don't care about my commentary on life. They don't care about what I, my opinions on anything. I'm not asked to share any of that. I'm simply asked to tell, required to tell, the truth as I understand it, as I saw it, as, as it makes sense to me. So a testimony of me is the truth as I see it. Now, if you were to have multiple witnesses in a, in a trial, it's very normal for everyone to have slightly different story because it's true as they understand it. But this is saying that this is God's testimony. It's the testimony of the Lord. This is the truth as God sees it. So it's something that's more than just instruction for us, like a textbook, like something dry. This is God's testimony of what reality is. And sometimes, many times, it doesn't look what... It's not the same voice that you hear. Uh, The other voices shouting at you is telling you one thing. And the true voice is telling you something completely different. It's coming from a completely different place. And that's why you embed yourself in the scriptures. You embed yourself in the word. You let it drip off of you every day. You soak in it. That's, that's, that's what you do. And that's how you are changed. Little by little, you're completely changed. You're washed by the renewing of the word, it says. And it says that this testimony is sure. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's sure. It's something that, that is resolute. It doesn't bend. It doesn't break. It stays, it's like a Gibraltar that will stay there no matter what the storm that hits it was. And its effect is that it makes simple people wise. Now, we've been going through the Proverbs on Wednesdays, and we've looked at the idea that simple, a simpleton is just someone with an open door. Everything about them is open. So thoughts come in with no, no shield, no guard. They don't, no screen to keep the mosquitoes out. Anything comes in. Whether it's what wise things can come in, great. Or stupid things can come in, no problem. Just bring it all in. They don't filter anything. Nothing, nothing is kept out and nothing is kept protected in. But a wise person is discreet. And discreet comes from the word screen. You screen everything. You look at something and go, okay, is that stupid or is it smart? Is it something that's good for me or something that's bad for me? You, you're not gullible. Okay, a wise person can be made wise by the scriptures. That's what it says. It, can, it makes wise the simple. Right? Okay? So, so wisdom is preferred to folly, but you don't know the difference when the door is open. But someone that screens it lets only certain things in and not other things in. It's the same. And so I wrote, if it's a testimony, if it's God's testimony, I accept that testimony. Now, this is where people would mock. They would mock me because what you're saying is this is authoritative. You're actually saying, I will call right, right only when it matches with the scriptures. I won't say something is right or wrong. My morality is based upon what God thinks. I don't have my choices. I don't say, well, I don't care. It doesn't matter, matter to me. It has nothing to do with me. No, I have to say, I accept God's testimony. He says, this is reality. And I say, okay, well, the world is lying to me in big, loud voices, but I accept it. And it's something that I continuously do over and over again. I re-accept God's testimony as true. This is the voice of truth that's calling to me, where other voices are, are calling something different. Okay. Now, it says, it says here that, the, this is verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So statutes. Did you ever have a train set and you could take all the tracks that were identical and put the little matchers together and you could line up the train and you could make the train ride on the, on the train tracks? That's the easiest, in my mind, to what a statute is. A statute is all the little parts of something that you need in the right order for you to understand something. All right? So if you were going to learn Spanish or French or something like that, they would teach you the word for hello. They would teach you the word for goodbye. Then, then little bit by little bit, they'd add something. You'd have describing words like hot and cold and up and down and big and little. And you would add little bit by little bit. And then you would get more and more and more sophisticated. Well, the statutes are all of those pieces not just the pieces, but the order of those pieces so that it makes sense to you, all right? If someone needs to know the language and I just hand them a dictionary, that's a very cruel thing to do. Well, these are all the words in the English language. Learn them, okay? Um, Melissa was teaching a, a Hispanic English once, and the first lesson, it was, a, it was a, a Christian textbook that she was using, and the first lesson was about Jesus and the, and the sons of Zebedee. And the poor guy was trying to learn Zebedee, 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 and that was the first English word he ever learned. And I'm thought, wow, he's going to have a long way to go if he's trying to learn English from Zebedee, Zebedee. But, but that's what it is. Statutes aren't just pieces, but they're pieces put in the right order so that you know something by the end. His word is all the parts of theology that I learn. I know something about God based upon the theology that I know about God. But that theology, all of it, the pieces need to be in the right order. Okay? And it says that they are right. Remember, righteous being straight, they line up. They're, they're exactly equal to God himself. God's word is righteous, just like God himself is righteous. And it rejoices the heart. It makes you happy. It thrills you. So when a, a, a believer is looking into, into the word... There is a taste for it, whereas other people would have no taste for it. In fact, it's, a, it's one of the indicators of your salvation. I, have to, I hate to say it, but it is. If you have no desire, no, no taste for it, no taste for the milk, you may not be alive. It's just that's the way it is. Not, not that you're trying to be guilt-tripped into something, but you have to say, do I desire holiness? Do I desire to be like God? Do I desire to know what he has to say? Well, that interest is something the Holy Spirit does. And it's something he builds in you. It's something increasingly. And sometimes you need to do it in order to be interested in it. I don't know if you ever uh, put a little bit of milk on the baby's tongue. That's exactly what you do. You put the milk. You introduce the milk so the baby wants it himself. It's the same. Uh, Taste and see, uh, Paul said, that the Lord is good. I wrote down, if these are statutes, if the law of the Lord is statutes, which are small components that need to be assembled, then I need to assemble them rightly, and I need to practice. I need to know what it is that the Bible says and compare Scripture to Scripture. Since it's one author, I need to put it all together so that it's, so, so that it's assembled properly in my mind. Okay? The second part of 8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure. Now, that's easy. It's orders. It's your commanding officer gave you direct orders. Now you have something required of you. So God doesn't just say that this is his testimony of reality or his teaching of what to say. It's not just the parts that build up knowledge about him. Because remember, that's what he's doing. He's self-disclosing. He's showing you something. 
But this is a commandment. You're commanded to trust in the Lord. You're commanded to repent of your sins. Commanded to. It's not just, wouldn't it be nice? You'd have a much better life if you trusted Jesus. No, Jesus is not a therapist. He's not your therapist. Jesus is your commander. He's your God. He's your maker. And we're obliged to him. And it says that they're pure, that these commandments are pure. This idea of lucid, light, I don't know, if you have, have you ever seen the air after a blizzard? You go to, to shovel your walk, and it's just, it snowed for three days straight, and the air is so clean that, like, you could see a, a 10 miles. And it, it's never that way before, because even though air is always transparent, there is a degree of transparency there's murky air and there's dusty air and there's air where everything is kind of foggy and then there is air so clear that you can actually see. The NIV uses the word radiant. It's the idea that the word itself is light. It's not just that light can go through it, but itself is light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path so that I can see. So it's not just that I'm able to see because of how clear it is, but also that it's self lighting as it goes, something that you can't say about anything else. This is, this is specific to what God says about his, his uh, word. And its reaction is that it enlightens our eyes. It gives light into our eyes. So when you are completely without light, you go blind. We were kayaking in a cave in Kentucky. If you've ever wanted to do something fun, that's fun. We were in a cave kayaking and there were fish in the water that were didn't even have eyeballs like there and these fish had eyeballs five years ago when they were introduced into this cave and now i don't know how many generations of of fish there are but their eyes are all completely gazed over either you use it or you lose it and it's the same it's the same here to look into god's law allows you to actually see light in your light, we see light, is one of David's phrases from the, from the Psalms. We see light in your light. And I wrote down, if it's a commandment, it's to be obeyed. And now, that doesn't mean I obey. Do you see? It means I, I must obey it. But when I look into the word and I see that it's not what's conforming to me, that's when I, I'm alerted. Is there a problem? My problem is that I avoid this. I rebel. I'm a rebellious person. So I don't like, I don't just say, yes, sir. I want to do it myself. I do it my way. I'm a, I'm a toddler if you've ever had a two-year-old. It's exactly the same. Nine, I love. This is the fear of the Lord. When we, I told you we went through uh, uh, Proverbs on, on Bible study. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So when you say fear of the Lord, it's the idea of respect. Respecting God completely, uh, reverencing him based upon what you know of him. I know of something is true, and there's an effect in my heart so that I fear and, re- and revere him. Well, this is basically substituting the cause for the effect. So instead of saying, I know something about God and I fear him as a result, he's saying, your word is the fear of the Lord. I, I just think that's cool. I-, I like how it does it. The fear of the Lord is clean. Okay, it's It's pure. And it endures forever. It's lasting. It will never end. It is something that the more I know about God, the more I love God. The more I love God, the more I respect God. The more I respect God, the more he's not me. 
and I'm not him, and I defer. There is a difference between an older godly person and an older ungodly person. There's a difference in how they live because they have learned to fear God and they truly do have fear of God. Uh, There's things I do and things I do not do because I fear the Lord. And there's others that do and don't do other things because they have no fear of God, no, no fear for him at all. Well, how do, you, how do you acquire this? It's through the scriptures. You revere God. You reverence him. You treat him as God himself because of what you see here. And so I wrote to be held in awe. If this is the fear of God, if the scriptures are the fear of God, then I hold him in awe. And then the last it says here is the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So judgments, a judge would give judgments. Okay, so this would be like a verdict. God says, this is the verdict. This is, this is my regulation. This is my ordinance. This is, this is how I, this is the way it's going to be. He is the boss. He gets to determine. People hate it, but that doesn't matter. God's still God. Okay, and it's true. That idea that it's absolutely truth. When you say, what is truth? Pilate said, what's truth? And just and didn't even wait for an answer. The idea of like, ah, how can you know truth? And here's the truth standing in front of him. The word himself standing in front of him. And Pilate's like, ah, what is truth? There's no way of knowing truth. Yes, there is. And the verdict is that this is what the truth is. Now you must deal with it. When a judge, a judge with a true authority hands down a verdict, it's it. There's nobody to appeal to. You don't appeal to someone higher than the highest. That's the way it will, and he's the one who gets to say. Now, it's interesting. There's no, in this verse, in verse 9, the parallelism breaks down. It's true and righteous altogether. True and righteous are both descriptors. Remember, they, they match with God, and its, um, its consequence is not to 11. So go to 11. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. That's the result. That's the result of it being the judgments. The judgments will, first of all, uh, warn me, okay, just like the ju- any judgment would warn you. It, it warns you that, okay, that, that guy just got 10 years. I'm committing the same crime right now. Maybe I should stop. I mean, that's, that, that's the idea. There's a warning quality, and it keeps the idea that there's a reward. It's not just a stick that there's a reward to, to following God the way God wants to be glorified. He is the one who gets to determine that. So when you, you see it there in nine, nine there basically ten, there is a little parenthesis. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So I'd rather have it than money. I'd rather have it than food. I'd rather have it than something sweet. I'd rather have it than than the ease or the comfort of my life. I would rather know what's true and live my life in accordance to something that's going to last than, than to simply be uh, have opio- opioids till, till I was in some kind of a, a, a drug state to where I, I didn't even know what my life was. That's, that's really what people do. Why fill it with everything? Why fill your life with every vice? It's to keep your life because you can't calm down. You can't calm down if you're not at peace. You're, you're raging like an ocean, and so you need everything to kind of fill that. And so he said it's like, it's like gold. It's like, it's like honey. Now, when you get to 12, this is the reaction. Who can understand his errors? 
Cleanse me from my secret faults. Immediately, you look into God's word and you're just, you see that you don't match. Okay. We're about to come to the communion table. Anybody qualified? Do you, do you see it? That's, that you're only invited if you're a sinner. There is nobody, there's nobody qualified to do it. Now, when, the, when Paul makes it very, very clear that you are never to, to take communion in a wrong way, it, you're bringing damnation upon yourself. Okay, this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, when we do the communion service, we usually read uh, verses 23 through 26, and we will in a minute. But this is 27. This is the next verse. Paul is talking to the Corinthians church, which had a mess. They had a million messes, and communion was one of their problems. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, these, this is the church he's speaking to, the church in Corinth. This is why that many of you are ill, and some have already died. Because you are, you are coming to a sacred ordinance with no, with no idea at all, as though some, who cares? It's like a big deal. This is communion. So communion is, is, is not scary. It's not, it's not spooky. But it is very, very special because what's happening, it's a memorial meal. We're remembering the death of Christ. We're remembering it corporately, okay? And it's something that you remember all the time in your life. You remember constantly, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Jesus died for me. That's how, you, that's how in my mind I don't go nuts that, I, that God has got me. I per, remind myself of, of the cross all the time. But when you are in the memorial meal together corporately, Jesus is here in a very particular way. You are sharing communion with him. You are communion. Some, you are united Calm means together. You're united together, but not just to God. We're not just like a wagon wheel where all of us are connected to, to Jesus. We are connected to each other. And more than that, we are connected to every Christian in every place. And more than that, we're connected to every Christian in every place in every time. All the way. There's nobody that's ever lived that you're not in communion with. As you are remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, there is something that will feed your soul. It's a nourishment to your soul. So you are, it said, let him examine himself and then let him eat. Then let him drink. So the first thing is I would have to remind myself before I would ever touch something so sacred, you don't just barge in. You have to recognize what it is that you're looking at, that these are symbols of, of, of a dinner party that we will one day go. Jesus on his last night said, I will never taste of the, of the fruit of the vine again until I share it with you in my Father's house. That I, that I will never do this. This is, a, this is a table that will be set. And it is a table that is currently set in all times across all places. That's why that this is this is strong. This is a strong thing. When it's a sacred thing, so you examine yourself. Do I recognize that on my own I only bring curse? 
that I could never, could, could never participate in something like this. I'm not clean enough to come here. Well, the, if you think that, that is the first step towards being appropriate. You recognize your a sin, you recognize your offense, and you recognize the cost to Christ to do that. Right? So if you know that, that's awesome. You know what it was, and then you, you examine your heart. Do I believe that God will be kindly disposed towards me because he ruined Christ? He crushed Christ and let me go free. Am I holding to that? That's what you're examining. Is, is your basis to be accepted by God because you're very good and people will see you taking the communion and it's so good, you're such a good person? Then you are eating it in an unworthy manner and bringing damnation upon yourself. Are you trusting Christ, recognizing that without his body and blood there is no acceptance? Then you are eating it in a worthy manner. So sinners, let me tell you, the way you take it in a worthy manner is that you take and offer God nothing but your sin. And you take of him what he gave you of his righteousness. And he is welcoming you to this table. If you are from someplace else, welcome. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to distribute the bread and the cup. Please don't take it until we do it together, all right? So the, the deacons will distribute the bread and the cup. And as, as you take them, just hold them, okay? And um, if you'll, uh, while they're doing that, I'd like to sing um, Amazing Grace, the first, the first line of Amazing Grace, because it's together. We're not just looking to Christ, but we're looking at each other as we're looking to Christ. So you don't need a hymnal. There's no music coming in at you. This is just us. And while they distribute the elements and then, and then sit at your seats and then we'll, and then we'll take them together.